Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Raul Magani, who's leading the applied ZK effort at Jump Crypto, and Hendrik Hofstadt, who's the project lead at Wormhole. We look at the work of Jump Crypto, how Wormhole first came to be through Hendrik's work with the validator Certus One, which has since been purchased by Jump. We explore the challenges of interoperability, the design decisions they made in balancing security, speed, and functionality, the risks facing these types of solutions, including the famous Wormhole hack, what the future holds, and how they aim to explore using ZK in bridging and more. But before we kick off, I want to encourage you to check out the upcoming ZK Tech Gitcoin side round. This CLR matching round runs from June 8th through 23rd. It's a great way for small early stage teams or contributors building ZK Tech to get their first bit of funding. Or if you're an existing open source public good project focused on ZK Tech, you can also submit a grant at Gitcoin. During the CLR matching round, funds that are donated to the ZK Tech side round are matched from our matching pool. This initiative is led by Xerox Park and ZK Validator, as well as our fantastic matching partners from the ecosystem. We will have at least 100K in matching for this round, so be sure to get your grant in and choose the tag ZK Tech to be eligible to our matching pool. You get the donations anyway, the matching is sort of a bonus, but this is a really great way to kickstart your project. Just remember, the grant round starts on June 8th, which I think is today, so be sure to get your grant in as soon as possible. Now, here's the podcast producer, Tanya, who will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Anoma. Anoma is a set of protocols that enable self-sovereign coordination. Their unique architecture facilitates efficiently the simplest forms of economic coordination, such as two parties transferring an asset to each other, as well as more sophisticated ones like an asset-agnostic bartering system involving multiple parties without direct coincidence of wants, or even more complex ones such as N-Party, collective commitments to solve multipolar traps, where any interaction can be performed with adjustable zero-knowledge privacy. Anoma's first fractal instance, Namada, is planned for later in 2022, and it focuses on enabling shielded transfers for any assets, with a few-second transaction latency and near-zero fees. Visit anoma.net for more information. That's anoma.net. So thanks again, Anoma. Now here is Anna's interview with Wormhole. Today, I'm chatting with Hendrik from the Wormhole Project. He's the project lead there, as well as Raul from Jump, who's leading the Applied ZK Efforts. Welcome to the show, both of you. Hey, Anna. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So you're working at seemingly two different projects. Um, Let's first kind of crack into what the connection is between Wormhole and Jump. Is Wormhole like an independent company or is it a project? Wormhole is a fully, fully independent project. Um, It was kind of incubated at Jump. Um, Most of the core project contributors are working at Jump. Uh, the reason for that is uh, like lying in the background and the essentially uh, original like uh, origin story of the Wormhole project, which we kicked off back um, at Surges One, which was the company I co-founded, which later got acquired by Jump. That we built the original version of Wormhole, and then after the acquisition, kind of built it into its full own thing, um, spun it out, and have kind of been supercharging the efforts there. Very cool. And actually, I want to come back to your story with Certus One, a validator, kind of 
I also have a validator, so we can talk a little bit about that. But I want to hear about Raul and your role at Jump and maybe what this ZK, like applied ZK group is. Sure, sure. Yeah, this is something that we've sort of kicked off very recently. Um, but I think our interest in ZKs really stems from kind of really being like hardcore, you know, builders in the space. And and so we really want to tackle some of the hardest problems in the space. And obviously, zero knowledge cryptography um, is, is something that's that's very interesting from a technical point of view. Um, so we've looked at ZKs both from an investment standpoint, but now we're really looking into kind of leveraging uh, these proof systems for for different sorts of you know, internal uh, projects that we have, including Wormhole um, and a few others that that we're uh, really trying to push. It sounds like both of you, you've become part of Jump like in the last two years or so, but this is an older, Is am I correct there? I'm, I'm fairly recent actually. So, uh, you know, I think it's been about seven months at, at this point. Okay. Yeah, about a year for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So then maybe like less than that. And maybe you're not the total people to speak to it, but what what is the backstory of Jump? Like, it's an older org, so what is Jump actually? Jump actually started started in in the pits in Chicago <laughs> trading. It was now I think about six seven years ago that Jump really got active in the crypto space. Okay, um, first fully focused on trading, which is the roots of the company, electronic trading, high frequency trading, uh, quantitative trading strategies. But then really quickly realized that crypto is one of the like few spaces and a very new space in which they are like, this is not a zero sum game where they can be like positive sum games in uh, collaborating and contributing to projects. So very quickly at Jump, um, and particularly now Jump Crypto, which is way more public than a Jump Trading Group was before, we've kind of built out these three pillars. Um, one of the pillars being the traditional trading, uh, market making in uh, all kinds of crypto markets from centralized to decentralized exchanges. But then the other two pillars being um, the actual building. So contributing to projects like Wormhole, to projects like Pith, and portfolio companies um, in the venture book, doing research, publishing research, working on really tough problems like zero knowledge, um, proof systems, threshold cryptography, and other like cutting edge cryptographic research, and applying some of the like deep technological knowledge in the company to that. So building hardware, building ASICs, and and working with FPGAs. And then on the third pillar. Um, investment, actually um, supporting companies through investments. But I think pretty much every investment Jump Crypto makes uses like all of these pillars in uh, like trying to support the projects as best as possible from a technological building and then markets perspective. But is it still a tr- like a high frequency trading org? Is that like where most of the business activity is actually happening? You'd be surprised in, in that I think more than 50% of Jump Crypto at this point is in the building and, ah. and investing side, research and investing side of things. So cool. there's been a tremendous amount of growth, uh, particularly over the last um, one to two years. Yeah, probably in the last year, we've seen, you know, a lot of the, the team pretty much expand, uh, you know, probably 100, 100% in the last year. And, and most of us are very focused on building. I think everybody even even from the non-technical side, has some background um, and like love for crypto uh, and, and truly wants to like push the space forward from a product point of view. Um, and we have the trading as well because it's sort of our our, our bread and butter. Uh, but we are, we're always focused on, you know, building the new tech, uh, building the new products. Are there such things like quants in 
high frequency trading well known, but is there an, a version of crypto quants that's different or is it sort of the same role? There's certainly differences between the, the way markets are structured and maturity in the markets in particular. But I think there's also quite a bit of overlap. That really depends on what kind of product you're trading and what you're looking into. The interesting aspect is that quite quite a bunch of the, the quantitative researchers and, and developers that like we're hiring now also get to learn how to interact with blockchains. Um, mm-hmm. A bunch of our new hires actually went through um, a Solana bootcamp and um, are now going through different on-chain development bootcamps. And we try to apply this type of knowledge to the building side as well particularly from like an economics and quantitative research perspective, this is tremendously valuable knowledge that can also be applied to designing protocols, designing uh, tokens and economics. So the amount of synergies is incredible. Cool. So Raul, what's, what's your background that led you to be part of this applied ZK effort? Are you coming from ZK research? Yeah. What were you doing before? Yeah. So I, I sort of had a sort of non-traditional path, I guess, maybe, maybe into ZKs, um, I in college, um, I, I studied sort of electrical engineering and finance. You know, it's a sort of like dual degree program, and I was very interested in the quantitative side of of modeling for finance. And then I uh, got into AI research actually, um, and then oh. I sort of found my way um, into crypto. As as one of my friends was actually working at Pantera at the time, doing you know quantitative research there, um, and I said, you know, maybe this is something that I would be interested in. I don't know much about crypto, but I'd like to like to learn. Um, and I eventually actually interned at Pantera for for a few months and, and really got into in crypto from there. Um, I ended up actually then going to to Arbitrum, where I spent some time just ah, sort nice. of doing doing a bunch of different things um, on the scaling side. And that's how I developed my interest in, in L2s and scaling and all the things that are associated with that. And then I eventually actually went back to do to do my master's. And that's where I sort of got interested in the intersection of cryptography and machine learning. Um, and so I was working on uh, basically applying zero knowledge proofs to to machine learning and figuring out how to create proof systems for neural networks. And while I was there, I, I sort of randomly got introduced to Jump and and you know le- left my master's um, in within within sort of one week. You know, I had an offer within one week, and I so I just joined Jump. But I sort of still had this passion for for zero knowledge proofs, and I wanted to explore it as much as possible. So I've been digging into them, uh, digging into sort of all the math, the very interesting cryptography associated with it. And, and really like how to leverage these proof systems to create like production ready systems and really create products that leverage this sort of amazing tech. Nice. Henrik, I want to go into your backstory a little bit and Certus One uh, validator. So years and years ago, 2019 New York Blockchain Week, maybe I hosted a panel and I think there was someone from Certus One on that panel, like Bison Trails. This was like, you know, right when proof of stake networks were all still very much like test nets. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, maybe there was a few that were live. Tezos, I think, was live, but like there wasn't very much that was out. Cosmos, I think, at that point wasn't out. So that was my introduction to sort of the validator crew. Tell me a little bit about kind of what got you into the validator thing, what Certus One became and sort of what you did with it. Certus One, like it was it was in 2018. Uh, the crypto markets had just crashed. Um, I'd finished high school, <laughs> and one of my high school <laughs> teachers actually like got me really excited about Ethereum, smart contracts, and like actually 
building applications beyond just like pure transfer value on blockchain. So I was kind of diving into the space, looking around when I suddenly saw Tendermint and Cosmos, um, like build your own chain and the kind of inter internet of blockchains and that kind of really caught my eye. And then right on, I think on the homepage of Cosmos, it was like, we're looking for validators. And I was like, huh. Ah. My background at the time, I'd, I'd done like uh, mostly outside of outside of blockchain, um, a lot of security research at the time, um, a bunch of infrastructure things before running blockchain nodes. And this kind of looked like a very interesting way. This was all during <laughs> was, high school. That was during high school. And this is this is just post high school. I was actually okay, like, cool. uh, I was backpacking in Canada. And uh, ah. after the backpacking trip, I was kind of, uh, you could say computer starved. And <laughs> I was looking around and saw this, saw this post on the Cosmos side. And cool. so, wow, this could be an interesting way uh, to apply the infrastructure knowledge and the security knowledge. Because for the first time, like, Cybersecurity is always kind of seen as this like extra thing, particularly at the time of like, it's not the key requirement to have like the most secure system possible. Suddenly with slashing and the validators, like key management was the key and most important property. And that looked like an extremely exciting challenge. So Leopold, my co-founder at the time, and I set out to try to build the most secure validator possible. And that was the mm. start of Certus One. I think we really approached it from a deep, deep, deep technical angle because both of us having very strong technical backgrounds and we build a knowledge base. We always try to approach this in a very collaborative approach of like sharing a lot of our knowledge, sharing a lot of tooling. We like broke Cosmos a bunch of times, participated in the back bounty programs. When we did a chain, like the most important thing for us was to really know the software we're running. So mm. we read into the code, we did security research, and we did that for pretty much like all of the chains we then ended up launching, a bunch of Cosmos zones. We were like early in Solana, doing a lot of security research there, working with the team and like expanding the validator business and building out more of the infrastructure, uh, which mm -hmm. then obviously like got pretty, pretty wild over time as it was exploding. We would have never expected this to be such an attractive business case as well. For us, yeah. it was primarily about like the exciting technology. And, and then through that work, we really grew really close with the, with the blockchain projects. So. One day we'd, we'd been doing a lot of Solana research, as I mentioned, and like Anatoly calls us up on a Saturday and is like, "Hey guys, you're you're probably one of the first people that built like more complex applications or knows the the smart contract runtime on Solana well. Um, there's a project coming, which then would would later be known as as Project Serum, the um, central limit order book exchange on on Solana and." It was like, we don't have assets. <laughs> Can you guys build mm. a bridge? <laughs> and we were like, wow, this is, this is pretty crazy. And the two week timeline is, is pretty wild. <laughs> That's but what he like, gave you? Hell, let's do this. <laughs> let's do this. Yeah. Okay. And it was like, Serum is launching in two or three weeks. And it was like, oof, <laughs> this is, Damn. this is wild, but <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. And then we dove right in. That was kind of the first point where outside of the pure technical infrastructure and building out the validator business and growing that with more chains, we were able to really, really use that deep knowledge of the system to build out something. Uh, mm -hmm. That was purely a token bridge at the time. But actually then over time with Certus, uh, what happened was that Jump had been a customer of, us, uh, of ours on the infrastructure side. And they had been building Pith on, on Wormhole a bit later. And, and reached out to us of like, 
hey, you guys built this bridge on Solana. Can you also bridge out the, the Oracle data to other chains? Help us expand PIF to other chains. And we're like, wow, uh, we, had, we had built this bridge as a token bridge. We obviously made a mistake and forgot that there's a lot more use cases in interoperability, kind of haven't forgotten our roots in the Cosmos ecosystem where IBC was already pretty much fully yeah. fleshed out. And so we sat down, went back to the drawing board, um, thought about how to do this. And it was at that time that with Jump, we realized there's a lot of potential synergies to work together across infrastructure, across um, projects like Wormhole and a bunch of other initiatives we've been running in security. So this is how they ended up making making an offer. Kind of the the president of Jump one day out of out of nowhere messaged me of like Hendrik, I have a radical proposal to make, and that's how things came to be and how a lot of things got like crazily accelerated. Damn. You just mentioned something called Pith. Can you explain what yeah. that is? Yeah. Well, Pith is a is a high fidelity data oracle um, on on Solana at the moment. And uh, as as Hendrik mentioned, we use Wormhole to take take Pith prices cross chain. And so, Pith, Pith is sort of focused really at the moment on providing really really high quality data. So the publishers that we have are some of the you know most respected financial institutions in the world, to name a few. Maybe obviously, Jump is one of them. Jane Street, uh, Two Sigma, like a few other you know trading firms that are very very involved in actually pricing assets and doing price discovery, um, and and having this data available on chain for for applications to actually consume. And so, um, we're really really focused on that at the moment. But you can sort of think of it as similar, I guess, to, to Chainlink, if if that's an analogy um, you want to use. This kind of data, is this data blockchain data? Is it crypto data or is it all data? Is it like outside of it's that? It's prices at the moment. So it's like, you know, you know, like trading pairs essentially. So some something that might be on, on Pith would be like, you know, ETH USD price that you'd that you'd be able to get from an from an exchange or or one of the publishers actually yeah. in this case. It's it's crypto, but it's also equities actually. Yeah. So you have some of the largest firms that and exchanges that trade these equities, provide the data straight from the source. This is actually one of the crazy examples of what I'd mentioned previously with with Jump really seeing uh, seeing positive sum games. I think this is probably one of the first times in in history yeah. that all of these firms that are traditionally like really really harsh competitors actually working together and bringing their data in together. And it's kind of cutting out the middleman instead of like the typical Oracle approach where you have a kind of nodes operating that fetch data from different sources. Data is being pushed straight from the source on chain. You don't have to trust any any middleman in between. You get like the most most recent up to date um, pricing information. And I see way 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 more different data points being streamed over time. That could be weather. That could be options pricing. Like everything. So you're saying that this Oracle lives, like Pith is on Solana, right? Like it's a Solana-based application, I guess, that like acts as an Oracle. But why would you need to move that information anywhere? So right now, the, the data gets aggregated and lands on lands on Solana. I think the choice there really was with Solana's block times as well. Having access to that type of data source they can obviously stream much faster than like a 10 second block time. So the, the 500 milliseconds are super attractive. They can definitely go even faster. So let's see where that leads us. But um, applications like a synthetics on Ethereum um, or an options protocol, another chain, um, a futures protocol that needs strike prices, mm. um, they want to consume that data as well. So it's natural that the data needs to flow 
uh, to other places. Um, however, you can imagine um, 30, 40 -ish different parties streaming individual prices on a 500 millisecond um, interval. That these are quite a bunch of transactions. So there's pretty much no other, other L1 out there that could handle that throughput without your bills going into the into the millions <laughs> per ah, day potentially. Yeah, yeah. So it's great to use Solana as the aggregator and then go cross-chain using a protocol like Wormhole. Yeah. Even though PIF is also a case where we're actively exploring zero-knowledge cases, right. uh, use oh. cases and applications. So. Um, I think there's a couple a lot of really of exciting levers, stuff. levers to pull here with zero-knowledge for sure. Yep. Yeah. But before we go into that, I, like, I have another question on this because what happens when there's exchanges outside of those sort of providers to the Oracle. Like, so say, say something like Osmosis, where like it's different assets being traded in a different place. Like, mm -hmm. does that yeah. go, is that fed? In, I mean, maybe not Osmosis things, but maybe like Uniswap on one of the other EVM chains. Like, is it, yeah. is, is any of that data also coming back in? Or is there a disconnect a little bit between like the centralized exchanges and the decentralized? Right. So, so, so the way that, you know, the, the prices are, are determined are, are pretty much what the publishers say the prices are. Um, in, in the case of Pith. So it's not really from an exchange necessarily. It's what uh, the publishers are providing and, and their ability to do price discovery is going to be the main sort of, you know, ability for Pith to actually have robust prices. So the robustness comes from the publishers uh, being able to do this very well. And like, obviously we, we wanted to pick some, some of the best financial institutions in the world to provide this um, so that we have ro robust, you know, price aggregation and, and, and feeds coming in. Yeah, it's very interesting in the sense that these data providers, what they often stream is their own trades and the prices they are quoting. And a lot of them operate across different venues, including decentralized venues. Um, okay. So quite a bunch of the firms there, they trade on Uniswap as well. They trade on Curve. They trade on all okay, the exotic okay. different exchanges. They might even be doing MEB. So they have a quite good overview of the markets. But at some point, like exchanges also source data. And there's a couple cases where... Um, PIF is already consuming decentralized exchange data right from the source with Serum being on the same chain. But there's also cases that we're exploring there of using Wormhole to essentially get the data from Uniswap, from Trader Joe, and, and all of the uh, venues throughout the, the multi-chain world and aggregating that back and bridging that back to, to form a, a better aggregate value. Mm. So I want to hear the end of the Certus One story. And then I want to dig into Wormhole deeper and Pith and the ZK stuff. But I think we should sort of finish that. So yeah. Certus One, running validators, had this conversation about joining. What's actually happened then to Certus One? Because you had a team that was running validators. Like, yeah. are you still running validators? Is this like, yeah, how did you distribute out how this all works? Jump Crypto is now has taken over Certus One. Um, we've actually increased the the number of engineers that are working at the team has grown, um, running more chains, more infrastructure uh, across the board. The validator, some of them we've we've renamed to Jump Crypto. Some of them are still called Certus One, but we keep on running this infrastructure. And then um, our internal security research functions, uh, development functions, all moved in, and particularly like our focus on on things like Wormhole has has been been supercharged been spun out into known foundation uh, with a much larger team now counting more than 30 people being dedicated to the project. And this has pretty much happened to to all of our efforts um, that we had before. Wormhole itself. Now I want to dig into that. Like, I mean, what do you call it? Is it a bridge? 
Is it a bridge technology? Is it a, I've heard, I mean, I'm interoperability solution. I, I, I feel wary saying bridge because every time I try to call something a bridge, yeah. someone's like, no, no, no. So yes. yeah, what, what do you call yourselves? <laughs> this, it happens to me still. I still sometimes say bridge, but uh, interoperability protocol is, okay. is what we call it. And I think that might even change over time. Um, I think the way we look at it has changed as we interacted with more people, work together with more people. We started as a bridge. Now we've become an interoperability protocol. And actually what, what we're seeing now is we're getting even closer to, to the users. Kind of what we identified our, our identity had to be, our mission had to be is, is what we now call is like turning blockchain users into Web3 users, which is mm. allowing people to use decentralized applications without having to think about the L1. This is kind of the, the final mission of no matter where I have my main wallet, I want to be able to interact with Uniswap. I want to be able to interact with, with Trader Joe and Avalanche, SeaChain, uh, and with any other application in the ecosystem. And I don't want to have to bridge around, uh, move, move funds, uh, think about the different wallets, switch my MetaMask network. This is just annoying. And coming yeah. from an interoperability protocol, if we look at it, the kind of final goal has to be fixing the user experience. And this is kind of what we're looking at. We haven't found a better name than like interoperability protocol yet, but um, I, I think we've we've really really identified what what the core mission statement should be. Yeah, and it's not just the the users sort of interacting with the applications themselves. It's also applications on different chains being able to interact with each other seamlessly. So it's you know the the fundamental sort of interoperability protocol, the the generalized sort of message passing layer, as we call it, is fundamental to sort of like the the generality of, of wormhole as opposed to you know just being a specific application like a token bridge. Let's let's actually dig in on that because you said it sort of started more as a token bridge. What do you have to add to allow for this generalized data passing? Like what do you do? Yeah, you take one step back actually. <laughs> it was okay. token bridge is is already like one level up. It's already one of the the higher level layers. Uh, down below that what we looked at was like at the, at the very base level, what is happening is that there's a way for chains to essentially access or verify the state of the other chain. That's the underlying fundamental problem is that these chains can't like access each other's state or trust each other's state without running lifelines. So this is where we can later jump into the ZK angle. So we, we had to take it a step back and essentially build, build a basic layer that would essentially um, give access to this functionality of verifying state and exchanging information. This is the messaging layer. Um, and then on top of this messaging layer, and this is what happened with the wormhole v2, or now just wormhole. <laughs> with wormhole v2, we split it up into the core messaging protocol wormhole and portal the token bridge on top, which is just an application using this primitive, just like there's now quite a bunch of applications out there that are using the raw message passing uh, to build out their use cases, like Pith, but also like... Um, bunch of other applications that we call XDAPs, cross-chain applications that mm -hmm. use the messaging to like expand to other ecosystems and allow users to interact with the protocol despite being on another chain. So you just sort of said this, it's like you had to go back to that idea of verifying the state. I'm assuming you don't use light clients at this point, because as I learned in a recent episode with Nomad, it's very, very expensive to run full light clients of other chains, especially in something like Ethereum. And often you are trying to link yourself to Ethereum. So what was it originally, if not a light client? 
the way it currently works is with 19 oracles. We call them guardians. Okay. Um, these are um, some of the largest proof-of-stake validators, actually, <laughs> that usually also happen to operate um, a significant share of the uh, of the stake of, of any of the connected chains. And they operate nodes in all of these chains. And what they do is they attest to and sign um, observed messages and state of these chains. And that is being used to then um, allow the other chain to verify that. So essentially an off-chain oracle. And we, we've kind of a tiered approach to how we want to get from here to a set that is more than 19 signers. And then finally, in, in the last step to a stage where we don't increase the number, but we go to zero because we don't require oh. oracles anymore because oh, it's wow. fully zero knowledge proof and like client based, fully wow. trustless. Okay. Okay. This is really ambitious. This is why I wanted to invite right. you on the show because I, I do want to say this, like the criticism I've heard in the past about Wormhole is that it's a multi-sig. It's a multi-signer. And when you talk about those 19 guardians, are those the multi-sig holders? I don't know what you call them, multi-sig per participants? Yeah, exactly. These are the 19, 19, 19 oracles. Um, I, I find it a bit ironic. Um, sometimes when, when people, I, I, I totally get the criticism. And it's a valid point and it's something we want to change. We want to increase the size and eventually mm -hmm. get rid of any third, trusted third party or middleman. But these 19 actually usually make up what you could say is like one third to sometimes even 50% of the stake of the connected networks. So mm -hmm. saying you don't trust them, then I can also ask you, why are you using this chain? This obviously doesn't apply to an Ethereum, but it applies to most of what we see as proof of stake out there simply because, and, and you, you probably know that very well, there's only a limited set of companies that have the expertise to operate like highly secure validator nodes. Mm. And that said, I think is no, no larger than 100 to 200 um, firms. So this is kind of where we see the sweet spot of, of node operators and where we want to go. Interesting. But you want to expand it. So let's talk about that first step that you just suggested, this idea of like making it larger. What would that actually entail? Yeah, I think one thing that might be interesting to go into is the original sort of like wormhole v1 and, and why there's 19 in the first place. I don't know if you could talk about that. Yeah. Bit. yeah. Um, the, the original reason there's, there's 19 is because uh, with the multi-sig, uh, what needs to happen is in order to prove that two-thirds plus have signed um, and observed a message, we need to attach two-thirds plus of, of signatures, which is, I think, 13, uh, 13 right now. So you have to bridge that number of, of signatures to the other chain, which is quite a bit of call data and then quite a bunch of signature verifications, which is expensive. We could be, go beyond that. Um, there's some practical limitations with chains with compute limits, kind of upper caps, um, particularly Solana as well. But... 19 was kind of the sweet spot between like sufficiently decentralized and we can get like enough of the typical POS voting power in to feel confident about the safety and liveness of the protocol. But at the same time, it wasn't a spot where it was still like viable computationally and cost wise to verify the messages. Then there's obviously interesting ways to reduce the number of, number of signatures re uh, required, but at the same time, increasing the signer set. Right, right. And, and I think like practically, like, you know, the approach that, that we've been looking into for increasing the Guardian set is really to say, let's not verify, you know, 19 or 13 signatures on chain. Let's do 
let's just do one signature. And so there's a variety of approaches you can use, and there's a bunch of different cryptographic primitives, but threshold cryptography is one of them mm -hmm. that's sort of very interesting um, at the moment. And I think, you know, H Hendrik has talked about this before, but originally when, uh, you know, he, he had looked at, you know, yeah. doing threshold cryptography originally, you know, for Wormhole, because he's sort of, you know, always on the cutting edge of, of this stuff. But uh, I think the, the, the Frost paper was released, I think, December of 2020. And at that point, uh, Wormhole had just come out. Yep. Uh, so mm. using something like a technology for which the paper had just come out, you know, the month prior probably wasn't a, a, a very good, you know, practical solution. So I think like we, we know, a bit, you know, a lot more uh, about Frost and about, you know, some of these protocols. Um, we know about the robustness of them. Uh, there have been audits um, of these implementations of these protocols on different elliptic curves. And so we know kind of much, much better now, like that these protocols are actually very robust and provably robust. And so we're actively exploring this area, um, you know, how to do thresholds, snore signatures, um, how to sort of expand the guardian set maybe to 100, generate one signature that we just need to verify um, on chain and sort of reduce the cost as much as possible. Where are you using the threshold cryptography in that? Like, is it the selection of the signer or is it in the data that they're signing on? It's, it's both. So I guess there's two components to this. One is the threshold component and one is the sort of signature component. Um, mm -hmm. And one thing that's nice about, uh, you know, some of these protocols is that you can choose any subset of, let's say, T out of N, you know, signers, and, and that will result in a valid signature that you can use. So effectively, all of these guardians would have a key share. Um, they would generate uh, a signature share, send it to a central dealer that would then aggregate these signatures and then that dealer would sign the, the message, and then you'd all you would have to do is essentially verify that that signature, as opposed to oh, yeah, this is the threshold signing thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 I remember this from conversations with the new cipher guys and Keep, and there's actually a project called Thresholds, which I guess, and there's a new project called Entropy that's also playing with this stuff. Okay, got it. That's where you're using it. Because I've also heard this in the context of MEV and like creating more privacy for like mm, what yeah, is yes, written yes. to the chain. This is the osmosis. It's just the yes, word yes, threshold yes. gets <laughs> thrown around and I'm not exactly sure where it, where it lives in this. Okay, but I, I, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, same technology, different application. Yeah, it's very flexible. So it's, 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 it truly is like a primitive, um, you know, so it can be used anywhere. Cool. Yeah, but really the core for, for making the decision to go for the 19 in the beginning was robustness of technology. If you're building something like a messaging bridge or and a token bridge on top of it, this is a core trusted primitive. And it must not fail because there is a lot of value that is either explicitly as TVL or implicitly through just trust assumptions of if you trust the cross-chain messaging for your governance, then the value of your protocol essentially becomes kind of implicit TVL that is hard mm. to measure, but is there, it, it must not fail. It must be as robust as possible. So making conservative technology choices was always super important. We saw what happened with some of the, like some of the threshold signature papers there um, where uh, people that were implementations that um, forgot a very tiny detail, which was tragic in the end um, mm -hmm. and would have like allowed the protocol to be exploited. And this is something we want to avoid by making like conservative choices on technology, but always being on the cutting edge with Rahul and team exploring the technologies, um, building out MVPs. So yeah. the moment we consider them safe and um, also uh, viable enough in the sense of some cryptographic primitives are just not supported on chain. I think you've previously discussed that on the ZK side a, a bunch as well, um, where we just need to wait out for L1 yeah. and L2 supporting them. For you, at what point is it safe? 
that there's there's a lot <laughs> I of like I think there's a, a lot question. of a lot of different aspects. Um, <laughs> when is it safe? Is I, I think when there's been multiple like audited implementations, when there's been aggressive peer review um, of mm-hmm. the papers, and they've just had a bit of time to settle. There's no like fixed amount of time, I would say. Um, after which you would call a paper or a mechanism mature. There's also different levels of complexity. Like some mechanisms, um, like Frost, are considerably straightforward in how they function. Other protocols um, are significantly more complex. So with them, Mm. you'd rather want to wait out a little bit more, see a bunch more of audited implementations and kind of let other people like try this out before um, (laughs) taking a multi-billion dollar use case that has that much TVL um, already um, in making the migration. But I think we feel pretty confident about Frost and uh, Roast just recently came out um, for making it more robust as a distributed protocol. Mm. Um, So I think there we've, we've been able to develop confidence. So we're making a strong move in there right now because there's another extremely exciting aspect about this, which is that it allows us to now with Taproot also support Bitcoin on a wormhole portal. Yeah, I think there, there's been a lot of discussions about, you know, what makes, you know, a protocol sort of secure, you know, from a theoretical standpoint versus like it's secure um, in implementation. I think there was also, you know, related to ZKs, like I think maybe a few weeks ago, uh, an issue with like uh, Fiat Shamir and, and, the, and the use of the hash, the correct implementation of the hash function. And so there was an issue that I think, I believe it was Trail of Bits that, that I think found these it. were Plonk implementations. Wasn't it an implementation of Plonk, actually? Like an older... I think uh, there was an issue with that. I believe it was also like some, some issue with like bulletproofs as well. And and so like the issue was actually found in the paper as well. So, you know, some some of these things have been around for a while and, and people have used them. And But, you know, they're so complex that it's very difficult to know if they're actually going to hold up over time. And, uh, you know, that's just uh, something that happens with, you know, building new technologies. So I, I recently did have a conversation, uh, I think, think in a podcast where we talked about this idea of like engineers, like in the implementation of some of these things, these bugs actually get found, but they're not always like projected into the world. Like the fix is just made and it's not out of malicious intent, but it's because like someone might be re-implementing it and, or there's like assumptions in a paper that aren't completely overt to everyone who's implementing them. Um, and I know that's a really interesting example because that kind of disclosure of trailer bits, that was actually, it didn't affect every system. And that was so fascinating to see like what, what did get hit and what didn't. But yeah, I actually want to, I want to move on to the hack or the vulnerability because expo- I want to go into that because everything we're talking about right now is like cryptography being well, no. you know, <laughs> well battle hardened and and even like you described this initial design as being conservative, like careful. Yeah. And, and, and as I get it, like, I mean, you call it a hack. Yes. Some people would say like vulnerability, other people, anyway. But okay, so it's a, it's a hack. I had, it, there was a hack uh, because there was a vulnerability. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, okay, I'm fine fair. with both descriptions. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, in that hack though, like, can you explain to us where the problem was? Because was it, I mean, was it in... The 19 Guardian choice, or was it somewhere else? Um, it was not in the design, and it was not in the 19 Guardian choice. Um, anyway, that, um, we've seen an example of maybe too small of a signer set with the Ronin Bridge exploit uh-huh. recently. Um, in this case, it was um, probably one of the most most common common things in in blockchain and smart contract exploits, which, which is a smart contract exploit. Mm-hmm. So there was a bug in the implementation. 
um, of the Solana smart contract of the wormhole call messaging bridge, wow. which essentially allowed an attacker to bypass the signature checks. So the attacker could essentially forge signatures and pretend that there were enough signatures of guardians um, and then produce valid messages. And what the attacker did was they produced messages that looked like token bridge messages, bridging Ethereum into Solana. Um, so they were able to mint arbitrary amounts of wrapped ETH in the Solana ecosystem, which they then, using the legitimate bridge, bridge path, uh, bridge back to Ethereum. So uh, that was despite like multiple passes of review um, and audit at the time, that was um, a bug that was overseen. And I think this is really what what we need to realize with what we're building here in, in blockchain. Like code is unfortunately never perfect. So striving to get as close to perfection as possible, getting as many eyes on it as possible yeah. is really, really core. Um, there have been really strict practices before. Actually, internal review processes um, we made even stricter. <laughs> We've um, since then, despite there already having been audits and multiple audits actually in process or about to be kicked off, um, we've done even more audits. We have, I think, four or five different security firms on retainer that are constantly looking at the code base at every single change that's being made. No change is rolling out without going through that. And we've got one of the industry's largest bug bounty programs out there to actually incentivize white hats to collaborate and report bugs if, uh, should they find them. And I think the combination of these different pillars, this is really what, what is, what is core in, in something that is yeah, a rocket ship and, and not a car. You yeah. can't just drive to the mechanic and have it fixed. The moment it's launched, it has it's out there. <laughs> and, it's, and, it, the way. and it better works. <laughs> and um, since then, I think with, like, with spiking up to, I think, value being secured four to five billion, we've had tons of people look at it also as a result of the attack. And I think this is one of the pieces of infrastructure that really over time, also because messaging, you rarely modify anything there just settles and becomes a like fundamental, very secure and mature piece of infrastructure that people can rely on. And I think this is what it is developing towards and has developed towards um, having been live since then with tremendous amounts of value being secured. Mm. And I think jump plugging the, the $320 million hole was a sign of the conviction we have into the security of the code base and the processes involved. But it's um, obviously something that I think we're going to see, see in the space with applications. And this is why I think the audits, white hat incentivization through bug bounties and just a collaborative security approach and better tooling is so important. Yeah, yeah. This, it's, what's interesting here is it happened on the Solana side. So, and this kind of speaks to the idea that like the Solana smart contract ecosystem and tooling set is probably less developed than the Ethereum one at this point. And so you don't, I mean, I'm just guessing you don't have the same kinds of checks and tools. And we had Giorgios on recently to talk about Foundry. And I mean, that's pure EVM. It's not looking at yeah. anything else. And so like, yeah, is there an equivalent of Foundry or something like that over on, or Truffle on Solana? There's tool chains. Um, a lot of that has also just developed uh, recently. Yeah. And security scanners are being built in the Solana ecosystem. Like in the EVM ecosystem, you have three, four different security scanners that can help automatically detect some of the common vulnerabilities. Um, you have scanners that can actual actual solvers where you can do formal verification of smart contracts. That is an e like 
These are yeah. pieces of dev infrastructure where the EVM world is just still miles ahead. And um, I think that was part of like part of the reason how, how how things like this, like this was dealing with a more like deeper Solana, more complex Solana primitive that maybe out of 20 people building smart contracts, uh, one or two only have to interact with. Like these type of things, they're just not as fleshed out yet. But that doesn't change the fact that things can be overseen even in the EVM world. Yeah. And these processes remain just as important there. Yeah. To me, it highlights something like there's all these new chains coming online. And I mean, yes, there's a lot of EVM compatible ones, but there's also a, a lot of new smart contract chains. Yeah. People are bridging to those chains. There's all these different kinds of bridging technologies that are happening. But yeah, the smart contracts on those new chains need to sort of catch up in terms of the security understanding. It's not to say they won't, I'm sure they will, but it's just maybe yeah. something to yeah. for people out there listening to to start working on because it's a bit scary, that idea of like becoming very multi-chain and having <laughs> these kind of dangerous pockets that like are so unknown. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're trying to tackle some of that in, in particular as well with like, building dev tooling for building cross-chain applications and building across these mm -hmm. highly heterogeneous environments. Like the core pillars of Wormhole, we kind of uh, define as like X assets, truly cross-chain assets, assets that don't live just on one chain, but can freely move without slippage or any exchange having to happen on multiple chains. And UST was an example of that. UST was um, fully fungible between all chains uh, as, a, as a Wormhole X asset. Unfortunately, it failed for other reasons, but that part yeah. was particularly successful about it. In it being able to move around, we have a bunch of other assets where we see that there's like extremely strong synergies the moment your asset becomes a truly cross-chain asset. Mm -hmm. And then the second aspect of what we call X steps, truly cross-chain applications, they kind of rely on these assets being fully cross-chain fungible. You don't want to swap every time you move between an ecosystem. You want the coin to be everywhere and have mm -hmm. a canonical representation. And then what you can do is, is build applications that span across multiple chains, build applications where you have your hub, you build your application once in one language, like that can be Solidity and on EVM, you have one core deployment and all the other <laughs> deployments essentially are just light clients to that, yeah, um, yeah. are essentially just remote controls. And then you have liquidity in one place, no fragmentation, but you can still use them from everywhere. And this is where we're trying to build a lot of tooling. And, and yeah. this is actually like, this is very exciting from a security standpoint too, because right, like if you have multiple different chains with different tooling, you're writing in different languages and different virtual machines, like the, the probability of bugs is like, you, you know, you sort of have this like combinatorial explosion of bugs um, that you really, you know, you have no idea, you know, how to, how to find these bugs. You have some maybe bespoke sort of, uh, you know, primitive on Solana that you don't understand, but there's another one on Ethereum you don't understand. There's mm -hmm. uh, one on some other chains that you don't understand. And what's nice is like, I, I, you know, I'm sort of particularly excited by things like formal verification because you can sort of prove at the protocol level, here's what I want my application to do and here's what I believe is going to happen please tell me if it's going to happen as opposed to, you know, let me go find every, you know, nook and cranny of, the, of this code base and, and search for, you know, what potentially might be the be the error. And mm -hmm. so if applying those principles to maybe one application, one X step is, is a lot more sort of secure from a, from a you know, defense in depth standpoint um, um, than, than doing sort of the traditional approach. Yeah, kind of the build once, ship to all the chains model. This is the type of tooling we want to build because like liquidity fragmentation is just no option for a protocol. Mm. And building the same code base in five different languages, 
Going back to the formal verification idea, I mean, first of all, that's a lot of work to do formal verification across a lot of these things. And even with formal verification, I feel like I've spoken with people about this where like there are still limitations because there's bugs you can't you can't imagine testing for or something like you still have to have a very good imagination to be able to right, be sure right. that everything you've tested for has been tested correctly. It sounds almost like a wild west and a bit of like, I'm going to borrow this from the MEV lang language, but like this accelerationism <laughs> where it's like, you're just like, as long as there's these, this chance for a lot of these exploits, people will probably try and it could actually build a much more battle hardened general I, I just think it's going to be very it like it does sound like there's we're like in for some things in the next little while but hopefully hopefully they are mitigated enough by as much testing as possible and then also that at the end of this there is something much much stronger and more understood and that like a lot of these other languages get you know better tooling and all of that Yeah, I think that I think this sort of like main difference between sort of blockchain development and sort of the Web2 paradigm. I mean, there are bugs for sure, you know, in the Web2 paradigm, mm -hmm. and most of them go unnoticed largely because you're not really securing assets directly. And the difference here is like you write some code and that is directly securing, let's say, you know, in the case of Wormhole at some point, like $4 billion. dollars. Um, and so you have, you know, the potential of, you know, the, the, the risk uh, is, is much, much higher. And so focus on security has to be much greater. Um, and I think that's why a lot of protocols focus on on audits. They focus on you know doing defense in depth. But you know I think formal verification, as you mentioned, is definitely difficult. It's more complex, but it's sort of just another tool in the bag that you can use mm -hmm. to to you know sort of prove the correctness of your program. And I think it'll become more and more important, especially for, for finding smart contract bugs. Um, but not just for smart contract bugs. It's really like proving protocol level security, right? So interactions between different programs, um, different modules, different libraries, um, and, and knowing that this is actually Of what is supposed to be happening, um, you know, data like moving through, you know, every library, every module, every API um, correctly. Yeah. That's why we're actually taking the leap of getting a bunch of the wormhole uh, modules formally verified with, with a partner. I, we think like going forward, there's just no way around it. For something as fundamental and critical as this, it just has to happen no matter how complex. One quick question I have going back, I, I want to go back to the 19 Guardians and the next generation of Guardian numbers and the ZK, because we haven't talked about that yet. But I just want to ask, on like the Guardians that are there now, do they have any sort of like protective function? Can they halt stuff? Can they freeze anything? Like, do they also in a way currently act as like a backstop? Mm-hmm. So these guardians, um, just like in a, in a normal blockchain network, if they shut down, they can halt the system or if a, if a sufficiently large number of them, so one third shuts down, they can halt the system. Um, mm -hmm. This is not explicitly programmed into the protocol, but in actually in the case of that exploit, that is what happened. Oh, you were able to stop it basically to say, ah. Within just a couple of minutes, um, The team had detected what happened and um, the guardians had been informed and the guardians verified and then individually shut, decided to shut down their nodes, preventing further damages to the system. And I think this was an amazing like showcase of how well the community functions. And I mean, within 24 hours, the system was operational again. 
I think we're, we're quite proud about the, the incident response process there and how well the processes work. You know that as a validator, like we always talk about these, these, like there's always talks about how, what, what to do in these crisis cases, how, yeah, yeah. how to collaborate, <laughs> how people have exchanged numbers and how, how you can page um, all of them yeah. in an instant. And sometimes, and like in, in cases like these, this is what needs to happen and there needs to be community consensus. And in this case, it worked out like perfectly, you could say. And they all coordinated to like do governance and do an upgrade, fixing the bug within just a few hours and shutting down within just a couple minutes, individually verified, no central kill switch or anything. Mm-hmm. So this was like the 19 guardians said, okay, we're going to halt the chain to prevent further damage. What was happening on your side? Like what was, what were you, what was it like in that room? <laughs> um, or is it, were you in the same office? One whole team particularly quite distributed um, all across the world. So like the drainage of funds was quickly detected. We have an internal process. So this is part of like doing security, right? Um, these things can still happen, but you have a process in place, um, even for the worst case, as unlikely as you think it is. Um, so there was a process around someone taking the lead and, and owning this um, essentially this incident, a war room being opened up, all people oh, yeah. being paged, woken up, like no matter what the time was. I remember I was just playing a game with like a murder mystery game with my friends. Uh, that night turned into true crime. But oh, um, <laughs> um, we got all pulled in within minutes after this happened and made decisions to like inform, like ping the guardians, have them verify that there was a, indeed an incident so they can individually make the decision to then shut down if they think it's the right decision. And then mm. it was just a very constructive process of like, how can we, like, what was the actual bug? Mm-hmm. How can we fix the bug? How can we prevent further damages? Um, and I think it overly, like, I'm, I'm quite proud about like the performance of the team and how quickly we've been able to resolve and deal with the situation despite the financial damages caused. Did you find out who it is? Um, no, this is this is still unclear. Investigations are ongoing. Oh wow! Did they use any sort of ZK-related mixers so far? Um, the, the original funding came through Tornado Cash, um, oh, despite wow. that I can't really comment. Got it. Hmm. Well, I guess we'll keep an eye on that. The thing that I, you know, felt like when having you on the show, one of the thoughts I had, and I actually didn't know this as a fact, but I assumed, given the development of all of these, you know, interoperability solutions. I've had like Axelor on, I've had Nomad on, like I've had, you know, I've been talking to these other non-bridge, X-bridge, interoperability, whatever they're called, you know, interoperability yeah. <laughs> solutions. And basically I got the sense like Wormhole is most definitely going to be thinking about this, even though I didn't know that as a fact. I figured yeah. like you must be looking into new models, new ways to think about bridging these assets without the guardian model. So tell me a little bit about what work you're working on. You'd sort of mentioned some of the threshold cryptography stuff, but like, let's go further into that. Yep. Maybe, maybe starting from the like just high level business perspective of the, the wormhole approach. The wormhole approach is always one of like an organic um, kind of development as the space matures and as technologies mature and become viable. And while technologies are not ready yet, we, we try to like always provide the best possible interface um, to developers and to users. So the way the wormhole messaging API is built is that it totally abstracts away the backend. So when you use wormhole as a developer to build a cross-chain application, um, just use the portal to make your asset a cross-chain asset. When you do that, you never inter- like you never 
see the 19. <laughs> you never see a multi-sig. Mm-hmm. You never see um, any of that. And you're never going to see threshold signatures. And at the same time, you're never going to see CK proofs. This is happening essentially on the back end is fully abstracted away from the interface that developers and, and users use. So that was the core, making it modular and pluggable. Would you also, you wouldn't see any delay. You wouldn't like have no, to wait no. for signing to happen no. or something like that. It, yeah, it, okay. would, it would only get faster, I think, with with like potentially like actually speeding up CK. That's another topic yeah, that's we another, can we can dive yeah, into yeah. that we're like heavily working on. Um, cool. But yeah, this is essentially like the focus there. And and as we're making that, um, we obviously like there's no way around trustless. We we see that. When two chains, these like the the middleman, the signers, the multi-sig participants, guardians, they are only there because there's currently no way for the two chains to verify each other. But fundamentally, mm-hmm. they're trying to step in as a midterm solution to that. But ultimately, um, we kind of go where Cosmos started um, three, four, five, quite a bunch of years now ago. Um, and uh, with, with what IBC is, which is light clients verifying um, where the chains actually verify each other and establish direct trust relationships. Um, and the only way we can get there, no trust in middlemen, only trust in the chains you use, we need to go and use zero knowledge proof light clients and, and zero knowledge proofs for the reason like you could run light clients without zero knowledge proofs. Mm-hmm. But there's the aspect you already mentioned of like, it's extremely expensive. Imagine relaying every single Solana slot to, to Ethereum. Um, you would probably occupy most of block space and that would be quite expensive. So ZK less for the like zero knowledge part and zero knowledge being privacy, but zero knowledge in, hey, I can compress, I can prove something without giving you yes. all the data. Yes. And this is where this comes in, where we can either do like, if we prove Amina, we can actually use the full full state proof and execution yeah. proof. Or if we have an Ethereum, we do a light client proof of the header chain. Are you influenced or inspired by Plumo and the work that they did over at Cello? Because there it's like the light client Kobe, who is the co-host of the previous episode, <laughs> yep. uh, and who I work with at the validator, Plumo being this this compressed light client. Are you are you using this model, or is it is it somewhat different? Um, it's yeah. it's Plumo is amazing because they saved our team a lot of time and implementation. <laughs> because for a chain like like Cello, we can just like essentially reuse a lot of the CK um, work having been done in CK Lightline compression yeah. that has been done there. Cool. Um, but and it's hey. a, it's a similar architecture, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, like like it, it provides us like a basis to see like you know here's how we should think about the architecture. Um, but obviously, there's going to be some things that change. Um, you know, one of the sort of difficult things about using zero knowledge proofs. I mean, in this case, we're more concerned with with the you know compression as Hendrik mentioned like as opposed to the zero knowledgeness i mean yeah. that's something that we want to add potentially have as as an add-on that can be sort of enable privacy infrastructure for wormhole but uh, we're really interested in doing like sort of these light client proofs um, where we're verifying like we're essentially creating these state proofs and then bidirectionally the bidirectional state proofs to allow different chains to verify each other um directly and so that's mm. that's the ultimate goal and and i think like Obviously, there's going to be a lot of challenges with this, and I think one of the main ones is that the consensus of different chains is is quite different, and and these mechanisms um, are quite different. So integrating it's with also chain, which curves are allowed. Yes, that, that's on a, each that's chain, another thing right? that, that we should definitely you know sort of talk about, and that's actually one thing <laughs> that I've been more and more interested in in terms of like standardizing curves, you know, across different chains. I mean, a lot of uh, you know chains even right now, like 
for example, the EVM doesn't support, you know, pairing friendly curves really. Um, and you have, you know, BN254, mm -hmm. which is sort of the standard, but it's not very efficient for, for uh, verifying, you know, zero knowledge proofs. Uh, and once we get to a standard where we have these pairing friendly curves, where we have like, you know, some of the other cycles of elliptic curves that are necessary for recursive proofs, uh, that, that will be extremely important to like the adoption of ZK proofs as as like a cryptographic primitive as opposed to something that's this kind of bespoke area of research that, that we're sort of interested in because it's a cool technology uh, supported by a lot of interesting math. But then are you waiting for that? Are you sort of waiting for like a standard across chains of which curves are allowed and then you create a version of Plumo that you would kind of like <laughs> implement there? Like would you implement it? Would you build it out? Generally, I think Jump takes the approach of like, really kind of pushing the forefront of technology as opposed to waiting for things to happen. So like we've been actively, you know, speaking to uh, a, a few folks in the ecosystem. I, you know, I recently like had a conversation with, with the Solana folks um, and like Anatoly about like potentially supporting uh, some of these pre-compiles, you know, that are necessary for this stuff. Um, and we want to leverage ZK proofs because we think that they're, they're very important and that they can allow us to do things that are more interesting uh, than sort of the traditional sort of cryptographic primitives. But we still need some tooling around it. We need the ability to even write circuits efficiently, right? Like um, there's a bunch of different proof systems out there now, like, you know, Plonk, Nova, like Nova is a recent one. Um, but interacting with them, like, you know, like Arcworks, for example, like is, is, is a pretty standard library at this point, but doesn't support more novel proof systems. You know, even Plonk support, it, it really isn't there in Arcworks, right? Although there are initiatives to build that out, I know. Like Plonk is has a crew. <laughs> like like Manta, for example, has recently launched like OpenZK Lib and like the folks there and they want to make a yes. higher level abstraction that allows you to interact with different proof systems from the same mm -hmm. uh, language. And so that, like a lot of these initiatives are very, very important. I think like as we spend more time um, on this tech, like we should think, be thinking about tooling and and like part of the, the work that I at least want to see, you know, that comes out of the applied ZK work that we're doing is like really digging into how do we build this tooling and make it more effective so that we can leverage the technology in a in a really sophisticated um, and really robust way, as opposed to just going after some of them and and not worrying and you know outsourcing some of the you know, tooling work to other people? Um, we're really like focused on 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 building this out. Like like yeah. we, we we don't like to wait around for other people. We like to do it ourselves. Yeah, it's yeah. a very it's a very jump approach. Of you've you've seen that. It, I think both Wormhole and Pip are an example of of jump culture in the sense of they're like. Throughout venture and, and and trading market making, we get exposure to pretty much everything out there. And then when we see a problem where we think, what, why is no one solving this? Then we first try to find the people and, and work with them. But um, if there's really pressing issues where we see ways we can contribute as wormhole being able to like solve the interoperability problem or PIF of like, why, why am I only getting data that some validator scraped off of, off of Google Finance um, <laughs> and not the data directly from the source, then like people like just start building and applying some of the research. And I think on, on this research side, like Jump's always been super research heavy, um, has mm -hmm. like crazy amounts of hardware expertise. It's not, not yeah. just Jump Crypto. It's always been like, you know, a very research oriented firm, yeah. um, you know, from the HFT side as well. It's like, yeah. go ahead, like, okay, we're just going to build it or we're just going to work with others to try to make it happen if it's not there yet. And I think this is the approach we're like largely taking on the ZK front of just hiring the best talent um, and trying to build solution, bringing the best people out of the traditional side of the company in to help solve these hard problems. 
going back to that earlier point we had made about when is something ready? Like, how are you gauging? Like, so you're, you've talked a little bit about how like individual chains potentially need to allow for certain circuits in order to deploy some sort of standardized like client, compressed like client using ZK. Is there something else in the actual proving systems or like the ecosystem? Is there some point that you're waiting for to, to do it? Because it sounds like right now it's too early. Like it's in your research kind of trajectory and you're hiring about and you're probably going to do like test implementations, but it doesn't sound like you're going to like enable this next month. It no. sounds like no. it's a ways it's, off. This is much more, much more long term. Yeah. What's, what's the point where you feel like it's gelled enough to actually implement? So, yeah. So I think like one thing that I'm sort of specifically waiting for is like having like sort of pairing friendly curves, um, like support for pairing friendly curves on on every chain. That um, is really the the moat here for for actually deploying uh, zero knowledge proofs because you can't really efficiently verify without these uh, pairing friendly curves. And so once once that happens, like I think we'll be in a good position to actually deploy zero knowledge proofs on on many different chains as opposed to just uh, you know one chain that you know that supports it right yep. now. Um, and one thing that I would really like to see is like support for like recursive. Uh, you know, zero knowledge proofs, and in that case, you would need sort of these these cyclic uh, elliptic curves. Where, um, and and that's you know that th- that's a bit more complicated. I mean, M- Mina, for example, does support these curves, like you know the the pasta curves, as they're known. Yeah, I almost feel like, and this maybe this show can help this a little bit, but like getting folks who understand this to start sort of speaking up in different ecosystems as to the need for it, because it's they shouldn't really be controversial. They're just like things that would really make you know, connecting to other chains potentially zk friendly. You could actually use zk to do it. Yeah, I think I think this is actually maybe a maybe a good segue because we've sort of been working on the hardware side as well. And I think um, there there is a uh, sort of community initiative around you know accelerating zero knowledge proof systems, which is is known as the Z Prize, and, and there's quite a few number of people working on it. And I think this is probably one of the first moments I think in sort of the zero knowledge history where like a bunch of different participants in the space are coming together and like trying to standardize. Uh, things and so there's been a lot of discussion, for example, on like uh, when actually designing the prizes, like which curves should be used, like what is the yeah. standard here. There, there have been you know a number of different discussions, and and people have finally sort of settled on a few curves. And I think like once we have this collaboration, this like communication between different parties, like we're going to be able to actually uh, people will know like this is what the this is the curves that we need to support. And so there have been like some standard some standardization across this, like. Like with the merge, like ETH2 is going to support like BLS1231. Nice. Like there's going to be a support for like 377. I didn't know that. That's so true? I, I actually, I thought they were. Um, I, I'm, I might be wrong, but I but I, I heard that. Um, I know at least for the Z prize, for example, like a lot of the prizes are sort of settled on BLS12377 and 381. And so at least there's been some discussion about that, which, which I am very excited about um, as opposed to, you know, just using random curves. That's awesome. And actually, yeah, Zpri- that's so cool to think of that initiative. ZPrize is like pushing the standardization because actually there there is a group called ZK Proofs who's been doing standardization and research work. But I I did always get the sense, I think they did too, that it was like oh, they were doing this at such an early stage. There'd be like new protocols coming out, new systems being developed. And it was like kind of hard to say what the baseline is at that point. And it's it's kind of funny to, the, to think that it's through this... Uh, like competition, basically like funding 
the hardware acceleration just sort of forces the issue being like, no, no, now we really have to make a decision. Competition is a, is a great way to motivate. It's a great motivator yeah, for that's sure. That's cool. <laughs> and thought about it that way. Um, you had also mentioned using ZK in Pith. Is that used in a different way? Yeah. So, so it's actually, I think, pretty similar um, in the sense that like right now, the way, the way Pith works is that these, you know, you have these set of publishers who sign um, prices that they want to attest to. And, you know, on Solana, it's, it's verified using a multi-sig approach. Um, and again, we want to, you know, reduce the cost of this. Uh, so we can, we can actually leverage threshold cryptography again as a potential uh, way to aggregate the signatures um, so that we're only verifying one signature. And then we want to actually potentially use, uh, this is also obviously just a, an active area of research. We haven't, this is not something that's going to come out, you know, next month, but it, it's something that, that we're actively exploring and leveraging like zero knowledge Bruce is a way to maintain state off chain as opposed to, uh, you know, maintaining state on, on Solana. Imagine if you want to take, you have PIF data, it, it essentially it gets aggregated in Solana. So you are somewhat implicitly trusting Solana validators besides the data source. You want to go cross chain, then you trust the proof. Um, in addition um, of of the aggregate there, and here you can essentially eliminate every single like middleman between the like source of the price components, so individual price uh, price contributions of the participants, and like you're kind of cross chain native because the moment you have a proof of an aggregate price, that is portable. A zk proof is very portable, and you can even like compress multiple of them into proof of proofs. So imagine the like the both on the wormhole side, a proof of the world of like, here's a state, a, a proof of proof of the state proofs of all of blockchain. And mm -hmm. here's a proof of proof of like 200 or 2000 different like instruments that are getting priced. And you submit that single proof to the chain, um, cost of one transaction, one proof verification. And then you merely do a very cheap inclusion proof to get an individual price. This is where we want to go. And then like, as these proofs get faster, like we can have data can scale on like, arbitrarily and, yeah, and that's that's the cool part it's that really like mm. you can scale to as number number of publishers as you want you can scale to as number of prices as you want um there's really no like limit other than the verification cost on the chain itself and so that's mm. really the, the approach like there's this divergence that's really nice in these proof systems and the computational complexity of generating the proofs and the complexity of verifying so that's where we really get like the the cost savings yeah so it's pretty amazing you can get like really crazy frequencies of updates and you have no cost of scaling to to more products wow. which is like the big goal and here in the same way research means we're starting to write circuits we're experimenting with different proof systems but like a lot of the things we do now like contrary to like a research these are more like mvps that can develop into a full product this is not like a, a small research team somewhere in the basement of the company. This is very much directly next to the product team, nice. or sometimes the product team's already working on this. And I think a lot of the circuits we'll be developing, like on the wormhole side, uh, the light clients there, the designs that get written now, they are going to be ready for when the technology is there to actually cheaply verify them on-chain or verify them on-chain at all. So yeah. once it's viable, like we can make the move and ship next month. This we're is gonna, the goal. We're going to push to make it viable too, right? Like we want to build cool. those those primitives as well. Yeah, um, we we have a team working on like FPGA hardware acceleration, competing in the Z price ourselves. Besides sponsoring, yep. um, yeah. like trying to push the boundaries wherever possible. Cool. 
I, I want to know actually the state of what you just described for the ZK Pith stuff. Pith? Am I saying it right? Yeah, pith, pith, pith. Yeah. yeah. It, like, at what state are we talking? You sort of say you're next to product, but like, h- how far off? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we're we're very new at this. At this point, where we have sort of like built out a very small, like, sort of proof of concept, like very, you know, very small market to do like signature verification. Uh, we've obviously spent a lot of time. Like, I've been writing uh, quite a few like design docs on this, uh, trying to actually come up with a an architecture that makes sense. We've explored, you know, a bunch of different things from zero knowledge proofs to, you know, creating a peer-to-peer network that's asynchronous using threshold cryptography, using threshold cryptography with ZK proofs <laughs> to make it curve compatible so that you could sort of wrap up the entire state in a proof and then, uh, you know, basically sign it with the threshold with threshold cryptography so that you can actually verify it on chain. So there's a bunch of different, uh, you know, architectures that we were actually just talking before this about this. Um, and like, how, how can we make the, you know, it compatible right now? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different options that we're exploring right now. We just haven't, uh, we still need to go through the process of like rigorous design and, and, and rigorous sort of the process of actually engineering something. So it's, it's going to be, it's going to be definitely be, uh, some work, but it's very interesting. Yeah. Something that's going to come fairly fast is, uh, right now provide a stream straight to Solana and provide that prices there. Um, in order to even do the ZK prices, we need a peer-to-peer network where everyone kind of gossips and publishes the individual price components. And starting from that point, some of these POCs, we might even be able to roll out to some chains and actually use oh. that. So they might actually be viable, like alpha, but usable in the real world. And this is kind of amazing because like, no matter like what chain in the world or no matter what network, as long as enough people are publishing data, you can push it on chain and you you totally avoid these like silver point of failures. And we want to get there as fast as possible. So we're going to like take an incremental approach here. And with PIF, I think that's more possible than with a wormhole where kind of in order to really put it into practice, all the chains need to support it. Um, yeah. But with PIF, we can take an incremental approach. It's, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely nice in that, in that regard. I think like one of the things that, that I really want to highlight here is that like, we want utilities, like like we're fundamentally building utilities for the ecosystem with like with wormhole and pith, and and we want these utilities to be sort of like decoupled from each other, right? Like we don't want utilities to be sort of coupled, right? You don't want your electricity to be coupled with your gas, right? Mm. Like you know, if you lose your gas, you might lose your water, like that. That's not great for your house. So like for this ecosystem, <laughs> we want you know, oracles are a fundamental primitive of the ecosystem, and so are cross stream bridges and, and generalized message passing. Uh, we have like, you know, layer ones like Solana, right? Like we want to make sure that there's no sort of like single point of failure. There's no, there's no domino effect. So like when, for example, when something happens to Pith, like it shouldn't affect Solana. When something happens to Solana, it shouldn't affect Pith. Um, there should be a fundamental independence between them. And that's really what we're trying to achieve with this. And sort of zero knowledge proofs became a way that we were sort of exploring to sort of like start decoupling. Cool. I want to wrap up on sort of a last question, bringing back the sort of future vision you have for like, let's, let's assume that in a short amount of time, pairing friendly curves are like supported everywhere, you're able to do the ZK model, would you remove the guardians in that case? Or would you kind of keep something like them? And this is more of a question of like bridge (laughs) stuff. And this also, by the way, comes back to the point about UST, like the ability to stop something when it's going out into the ecosystem, when maybe it's toxic. Yeah, there's definitely a case to to be made for for keeping some set of guardians. I think like one one thing that I think we were talking about as well at some point was like, 
if you want to make a, a protocol truly decentralized, you want to make the participants of the protocol who are most invested in it uh, to have the ability to sort of provide their their resources in a moment when there's like catastrophic failure, right? So like yeah. figuring out what these failure modes are and then saying like, who is going to be involved in ensuring that uh, this doesn't happen or we can stop what's happening. And I think like in that case, we'd want to, instead of like, you know, wormhole arbitrarily picking who these guardians are, uh, it would be more of the network picking who they, you know, mm-hmm. who would be who would be responsible for this failure mode is is more of a is more yeah. of the question. You kind of picture it being governance, right? Like an almost a vote, some some something that would decide which assets maybe get stopped or included. Yeah. And, after and this a while. is very much on the portal side, on the on the token bridge side. They were actually also moving away from the bridge, and I like calling it like just a essentially a, a portal to create cross-chain assets um, okay. because fundamentally with one click, you have a representation of your asset across all of these chains that can freely move between them fully permissionless and wow. without any whitelist or anything. So that's pretty cool. But one thing we're thinking about there is um, particularly for hideout order applications on top of one more like the portal, you'd want to have a council that is governance elected that has stake that can like two of them can halt it for five minutes. Three of them can halt it for 15 minutes. And then if they halt it and governance decides that was not a legitimate halt, they can get slashed for that amount. And ideally, that bond they put up would be larger than what you would reasonably reasonably expect MEV to be by halting uh, token transfers on a particular link. I think a token bridge protocol or tokenization protocol will require this. The messaging itself, I think there should rarely or never be a case where there needs to be a halt because fundamentally it's just a testing state. Um, and mentioning UST, I think UST would have been an example where like, there wouldn't have been any reason to stop. Actually, I think this has been one of the strongest days for, for Wormhole because Wormhole met, facilitated pretty much all of the UST transfers across chains and Wormhole facilitated a lot of the um, BEVE or STEVE transfers in and out of Anchor because they'd been using that as a canonical bridge without any hiccups, like record days in volume. Um, <laughs> but I think the whole team is really proud about like how that, like the bridge was able to stand up to what, mm. I haven't checked the exact numbers, but very likely was record bridge volume. Are you talking about like when it <laughs> fell apart and everyone tried to get their assets out? Um, that, yeah, that was probably the most stressful situation a bridge can imagine that your bridge happens to be the bridge that a protocol has chosen as its canonical bridge that is currently falling apart. That was record load in terms of messages being transferred and value being transferred in a short time. This is also why you like just circuit breakers in volume. We've been discussing them for a long time, but aren't really valuable. The, uh, the last thing you want to happen in this situation is the transfer of UST being cut off. Um, so this is why like we're like extremely happy that the protocol like held up so well and I think it's only only a sign of like how this technology becomes more and more robust over time and can actually handle this type of load because like what we want is that really like big assets in the space to become cross-chain assets and I think they can only reasonably do so if they know the bridge protocol will even be able to handle like the craziest situation of stress you could imagine, which I think this was pretty much cl- as close as to the extreme as you can get. Um, but <laughs> full portal can. market meltdown. Yeah, <laughs> portal can. <laughs> I didn't realize. I didn't know you were the canonical bridge to anchor. That's wild. 
it was a it was a tough week for a lot of people, but I guess it, it is very good that they didn't feel stuck by that. Um, I know that at some point IBC transfers have, I mean, they're stopped now from Terra to other places in the ecosystem. <laughs> this was super fascinating because here, here comes the difference between light clients and this Oracle <laughs> approach <laughs> because the all of the guardians, they run a full Terra node. Um, so like when someone takes over Terra consensus and they try to fork off, they try to arbitrarily mint coins or something, this would be an invalid state transition. A light client would still think, oh, look, it's the valid validators that signed this token transfer out. So you could print money. With the, In the wormhole case, if they had forked off the chain and taken over the network as there was this crazy inflation, you wouldn't have been able to essentially take out like arbitrary amounts. Um, this was obviously a situation where there, there, there was a little war room and people have been discussing like, can the bridge fail if like Terra gets like taken over by a, a single validator? And in this case, it wasn't. So there's some interesting actually considerations when you do just light client proofs and not execution proofs of the actual virtual yeah. machine. Wow. I feel like there's so much story time in this. I feel like it would be <laughs> yeah. so like these war rooms and like the <laughs> the imagination that people have for like what would happen if and then you have to like map out activity of like millions of people at the same time and try to figure out I mean this is just like simulation but simulation on things that nobody knows yet. <laughs> it's so unmapped. It's crazy. Yeah, the best thing is you can have is like good tooling for observability and yeah. most importantly it being open source tooling. Like if mm -hmm. there's only people sitting at jump monitoring the protocol something has gone fundamentally wrong. There needs to be tooling for community to individually be able to like see transfers going on, detect malicious behavior. Like, I don't want a situation where the jump contributors go to the guardians, say, shut down your bridge, there's something wrong, and they would do it. I would never mm -hmm. want that to be the case. And it isn't the case. There's, there's always a way to individually verify, same as with validators. Validators in the beginning, they did whatever the network told them to. <laughs> like, upgrade to this version, there's an emergency patch. Now we've got like security councils coming together, verifying the source code changes and actually being these checks and balances. And it's the same for the bridges. And like this just needs to be supported further because otherwise, like this is the only way this decentralized infrastructure can can really grow further. And, and it's and same be with stable. the future plans. It's we're always looking in that direction. Like how do we ensure that it's it's distributed and decentralized? Like it's always in our in the back of our minds. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think on that note, we can wrap up the episode. I want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us the story of Jump, of Wormhole, of the Applied ZK Group and the work that you're doing looking forward. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Anna. This has been a great conversation. I enjoyed yeah, it a thanks. lot. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Cool. And I want to say thank you to the podcast editor, Henrik, the podcast producer, Tanya, Chris, who worked on research for this episode, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.